everyone and welcome back to The Extras. My name is Jack. I'm Peter. Peter, good to be with you here today and great to have all of you tuning in as we listen. Uh, as many of you will know, uh, at St Paul's we love to get stuck into the Bible, we love when you text in your questions and we're keen to engage and drill deeper and we have some meaty questions to get into today which uh, we're excited about. Peter, it's good to have you here. How are you, how are you travelling this week? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Excited to be with you, Jack. Excited to be answering questions. Excellent. As we get into that, uh, before we get stuck into the questions themselves, helpful for us to just remind people where we've been. So Sunday, we're, we're in the Word, we're, we're working through the book of Jonah. What did we get to have a look at uh, on Sunday? Yeah, well, we're up to chapter two, this prayer that Jonah prays from the belly of the fish, the famous mm, fish. Famous fish. Although, as we talked about, our eyes need to be directed not so much to this famous fish, but to the salvation that the fish is for Jonah from mm. the Lord and thinking about well, what does it do to us when we're saved by the Lord? Are we grateful for the Lord's compassion that he has shown to us? And what does that mean for the way we think about other people? Are we ready to see that same compassion extended to them? Mm, yeah, lots of big questions this book asks of us. And we explored a bit of, you know, some of the, the ups and downs and the irony and the surprises this sort of book throws at us. And our first question is really starting to get us into some of those bigger questions about this book. Someone's texted in, do we know or have an idea of who the author of the book of Jonah could be? Yeah, it says right there on the top of the page, Jonah. <laughs> no, not necessarily. Question answered, that's it, yeah. Yeah, well, um, the, the short answer is no, we're not really told. It could conceivably be written by the book of Jonah, but there is so written Jonah by himself. Jonah yeah. himself, that's mm. right. But there's nothing in the book that tells us one way or another who wrote it. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, you come to the books of the prophets and, you know, you flick over to one of the other prophets and you'll see, you know, it starts the word of Isaiah, the son of whoever. And what follows in the book of Isaiah is then words that we assume were spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Whereas Jonah's interesting. It's that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and then you don't get this book of prophecy by Jonah. You get this story about the prophet Jonah. So mm. there's something already just in the way the book's set up. There's clearly something different going on here. So it's it's not the words of Jonah, it's about Jonah, and yeah, maybe Jonah wrote it. I think some people who, you know, take a very, um, like a super historical approach to this book would say, oh, well, you know, how else would we know this story about how Jonah was in the fish? Like, no one else was there to observe it, so someone must have written it down, and people can kind of say, oh, well, the only way you get a story like that is if Jonah himself told it, right? So that's one thing. But I think that, well, we're about to have that discussion as well, and Pending that, yeah, I think that what you said is right, yeah. We don't know, do we? Yeah, perhaps the important <laughs> thing is it's the word of the Lord to us, and that's yeah. how we take it, so we know ultimately it's from the Lord. We don't mm. know by whose human agency it's come to us, but that doesn't yeah. affect how we receive it in faith. Yeah, which is pretty common in the Old Testament, so often in the, you know, we come to these things often in the New Testament lands, because that's where we're most comfortable, and you read New Testament books, and it starts, you know, I, the Apostle Paul, and then he tells you who he's writing to. And we're sort of used to knowing, you know, who wrote this and who he wrote it to, and sometimes even a pretty good idea of when and what year. Most of the books in the Old Testament just aren't like that. You know, the vast majority of them, we don't really know ultimately who wrote these words, but we know that, as you said, they're God's word to us. So, absolutely worth listening to. Mm. That's probably all we can say for now. We'll keep going on though. So, the second question, this is a, 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 an excellent one, one we're probably going to spend a, a chunk of time on because it's important. Someone's texted in, do we best interpret Jonah as history or take a, a parabolic approach? I guess read it as a parable, especially with regard to chapter 2. Peter, what do you think? Yeah, it's a great question, a really important one, and uh, as you've alluded to, not a straightforward one to answer. Mm. 
really, you know, the key as we're reading the scriptures and as we're reading uh, particularly, you know, Old Testament texts, we have to be attentive to genre. Yeah. It's really important that as we read, we work out what kind of a text are we dealing with, what kind of writing is this, and generally the best guide is the writing itself. Mm. Usually there'll be clear enough indications in the text, so the Psalms make it clear enough that these are songs to God. Uh, There are various things like little prescripts in there that tell us well this is for the choir master and we think aha this comes in some sort yeah. of a musical setting and then you know we have the the second person addresses you O lord and, mm. and then you know first person i will praise you and that sort of thing so we want to be looking in the text primarily for clues yeah so in china what kind of clues do we get well not clear ones <laughs> not as clear as we would like so uh, as you point out, it is a story about Jonah, and so it reads uh, like history, but mm. it's not as thoroughly embedded in a historical context as, for example, you know, stories that we have about a prophet like Elijah, who's running around doing prophet stuff, but that comes within the context of clearly a, you know, a history with kind of dates and places and all that kind of thing. Yeah, so 1 Kings 17, Elijah shows up and he's just, you know that Ahab is the king of Israel and someone else is the king of Judah and you can kind of get close to like dates and places. You've got this really strong set of historical data there. But Jonah's different. A little bit more light on. So, Mm. you know, it talks about a king of Nineveh, but no name for that king. And it's it's a little bit vaguer in the historical details and, and it reads in some ways a bit more like a sort of a standalone text which Mm. is you know perhaps some people think one clue well uh, maybe this is not exactly the same kind of history writing that for example we find as you would say in the book of kings yeah sure yeah and then i think there's other things like the matter of just the style of jonah you know you and i both been trying to point this out as we preach but in jonah it's like stylized and it's uh topsy-turvy and it's satirical and you have there's, I think there's, there's these clues that there is something that's been told. Uh, if it is history, it's told in this very kind of over-the-top way. Like, everything's big. Like, the storm is big, the ship is big, the fish is big, the city's big. Like, it's got this larger-than-life kind of feel. That's right. I think you use the words, uh, it's like a kind of a comic book to me. And I think mm. that's helpful because it's, it's all action. It's bang, bang, bang. It's yeah. big. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, like, you know, we get to it in Chapter 3. Like, even the cows kind of repent in sackcloth and ashes. Like, it's got these elements that are, yeah, there's, there's something almost cartoonish about it. I don't think that necessarily means it's not historical. Like, you could be having history told in a very uh, sort of stylized way. Uh, but there are people who look at that book and say, yeah, this, this book, you know, even the ancient Israelite readers would have come to this unknown. Oh, yeah, this is, look, how funny is this? Like, uh, is this something that's meant to be taken, you know, seriously as history that really happened? There'd be some people who'd say, no, this is a book that, that is a parable, like, in the same way that Jesus told stories that were kind of larger than life. You know, the guy who had the debt of, like, 10,000 bags of gold, and then he has, mm. like, you know, a handful of coins, so he demands his mate pay back to him. Like, that, that kind of exaggerated thing. Uh, you see that in some of Jesus' parables. So some people who look at Jonah and say, yeah, is this a book that is presenting itself to us as this uh, over-the-top story to make this really crucial theological point? Yeah. There's also the fact that some of the historical details, some people who are well-versed in biblical archaeology and the ancient Near East, the kind of historical context uh, that the book of Jonah presents, uh, 8th century, ancient Near East. Some of these details, these uh, scholars find hard to square with other things that we know of the period. Now, 
that's a bit ambiguous. It may well be the period is not well understood in one way mm. or another and the details can well be squared. Yeah. Uh, or it may be an indication that the book is not primarily trying to narrate history in a cold, hard, just the facts man mm. kind of a way. But the theological message is utmost and that historical veracity has actually taken a little bit of a backseat to saying something true about God, about his compassion and about what people are like. Yeah. And I think, I mean, hopefully that gives you as a listener a sort of a sense of some of the factors involved in this discussion. Like, I think Peter, you and I have both spent a bit of time thinking about this. And I guess, yeah, I mean, if you just ask point blank, like, is it history or parable? Like, how is it that you take it? How do you put all that together as you come to read the book of Jonah? Yeah, well, I think the best answer I can give to a complicated and difficult question <laughs> is I don't know. And I don't really think that it matters. Mm. That's interesting, yeah, because I think that sometimes you'd come to the New Testament and you'd say, like, oh, like, if, you know, if the resurrection of Jesus didn't really happen, like, that's got to be a big deal, right? Like, Paul even says, you know, if Christ has been raised, we're still in our sins and all that. Like, you said, you're saying it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Like, tell us about that. Yeah, well, I think that in terms of genre, whether it's uh, a, a parable so a, a, a story that is created for the purpose of telling, um, you know, making a, a message, making a theological statement primarily, mm. or whether it is history, uh, it's still told in this kind of elevated, stylized mode. I think that's uh, inescapable, whether it's history or parable. It's history drawn with broad, colourful brushstrokes. Mm. And either way, it's the theological message that's, that is the key. So the take home from Jonah isn't, well, if you're looking to create uh, a detailed history of the Assyrian Empire in the 8th century in relation to one particular person from Judah, uh, from Israel, then mm. here's some key data for you to assimilate in your historical reconstruction. Yeah. That's not the take home. The take home's about yeah. God, yeah. about God's mercy and compassion. Mm. And I think that that take home is really the same no matter what mode we end up reading Jonah in. Yeah, that's really crucial, I think, like, there's, I think there's room to have this discussion, and it's an interesting discussion, but I think you're right. Like, I think the, the core theological truth is going to be there on the page either way. Yeah. I mean, personally, I I think if I... Yeah, I, like, I think the way you said it is how I'd say, yeah, I, I don't know, and I don't think it matters that much in the end. Um, I think, like, at some level, that's all I can say. Like, I think, you know, just personally, I think I do lean a little more in the historical direction. And, and I guess the other kind of data point is, you know, Jesus' words in Matthew 12, which we also looked at, that... Mm. Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will rise up the judgment, at the judgment and condemn this generation. And I don't think that's a knockdown thing. Like, I think Jesus could be referring back to this story and kind of making an illustration from it. But I lean more towards the way he uses that phrase there. I think Jesus, you know, he puts the Ninevites on par with uh, the Queen of the South, who we have another question about later, who's another historical figure. And I take it Jesus is saying there were people in Nineveh who repented, who are going to rise up on the last day. And that pushes me to saying, yeah, I think that there is this historical kernel to the story of Jonah, and it's been retold with these crazy cartoonish kind of vibes. But, yeah, I don't think it's a knockdown argument either way. So that's my sort of hunch, I guess. No, but I think mm. Jesus' words point us to something really helpful, that we must take the book of Jonah really seriously. Yeah. That there's something important for us to learn here. Mm. Well said. Hope that's been helpful and, yeah, interesting for you. There's lots of rest of it there, but take home is listen to this book. It really matters, yeah. All right, we'll keep coming on. Uh, a few sort of questions of, I guess, clarification that we can uh, move through pretty quickly. Uh, someone says, uh, when Jack was talking about the sea was swelling around Jonah, it should have been the neck and then the throat. 
Yeah, Jack. Yeah, Jack. Um, yeah, I think I said uh, it's verse 5, isn't it? You know, the, the water's threatening Jonah. Um, in Hebrew, it's literally, yeah, it's up to his throat. And then I said, you know, he's up to his neck in it, which I wasn't trying to imply that, like, the water would touch your inside of your throat before your neck. Like, I, mean, I was giving the kind of the English equivalent, the way we would kind of express this poetically. And, you know, this is poetry. Like, you know, if you press all the details, you know, to, you know, absolutely every last literalistic point, you'll, you'll kill it, so. That's let, right. <laughs> Maybe it's worth pointing out that in, yeah. in verse 3, he says he's in the depths, and then the waves go over him. Well, waves are not in the depths, they're yeah. in the surface. Mm. So, you know, we just need to think our way back to year 9 poetry and stay a little bit loose, stay a bit fluid. It's not exactly the same as mm. a bang, bang, bang prose narrative. Yeah. Poetry works a bit different. Yeah, helpful. All right. Next one. Someone's asked, well, said, I'm pretty sure that the sailors cried out to their own gods, not the one true god. Peter, get a comment. Uh, well, they uh, are each calling out on their own gods in verse 5. But uh, later on, uh, we find them uh, calling to the Lord. And mm. uh, in verse 14, then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord. Yeah. And uh, as we've pointed out a few times, Lord in small caps is uh, stands for God's own name, Yahweh. Mm. And so they actually call out to Yahweh, please, Yahweh, don't let us die. So yeah, yeah. they call on the one true God. So yeah, both, yeah. They cry mm. out to their own gods and then they have experience of, oh my goodness, Jonah's God is the God in the sea. Like, I want to cry out to that God. And they do cry out to the one true living God, yeah. So the sailors are on a journey and that's yeah, a wonderful thing we got to talk about last week. All right, we'll keep going. And now someone, this is a, this is a long one. Uh, I think it's worth reading. Uh, someone has said, in keeping with the theme of God bringing calamity in our lives in order for us uh, to call out to him, does God do that in other ways? For example, to those who run from and turn away from God, can and does God give people over to their sin and their depravity? Sort of Romans 1. Uh, to show people that life without him is actually pretty terrible and lead them to repentance. And to add, does he give Christians who are running from God over to sin in order to lead them to repentance? Lots of questions there. I think my response is basically yes. <laughs> um, I think there's lots of good truths there, and in a sense I've got nothing to add. Uh, not a lot of Jonah's couture is about that. I think I made the point in my talk that, you know, Jonah says, God, you hold me into the depths. And we know that was the sailors in chapter 1. And in chapter 2 he says, no, God, you did it, because Jonah can see that God's hand stands behind their hand. So... Everything else you said, yeah, absolutely. Romans 1, God hands us over to the consequences of our sin and we, we face the destruction, that downward spiral. Oh, Amen. That's all I've got to say, yeah. We'll keep going. Uh, question 5. Someone has asked, uh, is the place of the dead, or Sheol, the same as hell? What do you think, Peter? Well, I think no. I think no. Sheol uh, is in the Old Testament... Uh, the description of the place where dead people are. So mm. when you're dead, we sometimes think about, um, you know, he's up there somewhere looking down. That's not how Israelites thought about dead people and what mm. they were doing. They're not up looking down. They're, they're down uh, in perhaps uh, maybe a large, dark space below the earth somewhere. Maybe mm. you could think like a great big cave or something. But a place, you know, a place where it's dark and it's nasty and where God is sovereign and yet you're at a remove from God. Uh, not a good place. So the place of the dead, it doesn't seem to be a place of God's active punishment. And if that's how we think of hell, perhaps we're more in line with a biblical concept uh, or image of Gehenna, the, the mm. Valley of Hinnom, 
outside Jerusalem, the place where you have burning rubbish tips where, where worthless things are, are thrown out to be um, done away with. Yeah. And that's probably more formative for our conception. When we say hell, we're probably thinking along those lines. Mm. But Israelites, when they say Sha'ol, uh, you go down to Sha'ol when you die yeah. uh, to await the resurrection. Yeah. One of the, I mean, this came up in my Bible reading um, yesterday. I think I'm reading through Genesis and uh, Genesis 27 and Joseph, we're going to tell this go through this story in church in a few months actually um, you know Joseph gets sold by his brothers and goes off to slavery and they take Joseph's robe back to his dad Jacob and Jacob thinks Joseph's died uh, Genesis 37 34 then Jacob tore his clothes put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days and all his sons and daughters came to comfort him but he refused to be comforted no he said I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave and in Hebrew, it's until I go down to Sha'ol to join him. It's the that kind of thing. Like Jacob's, like he's down there. I'm gonna go down there. That's sad. Like it's a it's, it's a negative thing. But mm. yeah, that the, the hell that Gehenna, the, the eternal fire and torment. Like that's that's kind of another like ten steps beyond in terms of negativity. I think like Sha'ol's bad, but it's not like that sort of picture of eternal suffering that we come to see later on. I think yeah. Cool. We'll keep going. Uh, Still, okay, back in Jonah 2, uh, someone's asked, when Jonah says that he has vowed, what he has vowed he will make good, which is what he says in verse 9 of chapter 2, uh, could it be suggesting that Jonah made a vow at some point uh, before when he was thrown in the sea, so before the fish, possibly related to fulfilling what God has asked him to do in the first place, back in chapter 1? Yeah, I, I will fulfill my vow. Yeah, what do, we, what do we make of that kind of language? What I vowed I'll make good. Yeah, I think it's related to this issue of how uh, literally ought we to press the prayer. Is he kind of giving us uh, a report in so many words about what happened when he was in the sea? Um, that's possible. Mm. You know, maybe he uh, made a quick little vow down there as the breakers and waves were going over him. Um, it's also possible that if Jonah is quoting an existing psalm, he's doing it because some parts of the psalm map very closely onto his experience, others mm. a little bit less closely. And it's not impossible that this is a, a, a generalized expression that kind of says, God, I'm so committed to you because of your salvation for me. I'm going to stay committed to you in future. And, and Jonah wants to give voice to that. He may not have you know, literally made a vow in so many words, but that expression, gosh, God, I was far away. You are so good. Mm. I'm with you now. And I want to stay committed to you. That that expresses what he wants to say to God in these moments. Yeah, helpful. Yeah, and I'm I'm trying to while you're talking, I'm trying to think of like an example from the songs we sing today where that could kind of be true. And I haven't, I feel like I haven't really made it a great one. But um, it's like we sing Amazing Grace and say, you know, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I'm see. And maybe you sing that as someone who, you know, had the glorious blessing of growing up in a Christian home and in in the church, and you kind of. You sing that and you're like, well, in a sense, like, you know, that experience of being, like, utterly wretched and being, you know, the, the unbeliever just absolutely lost and blind and, like, well, that wasn't really your experience, but, but you sing that and you know what it's saying, right? And it means something for you because you know that without that work of God, you would be a wretch and, you know, there was a time when, you know, at some point you were dead in sins and you still had to come to faith. So we sing those truths and if you kind of press that as, like, a literalistic history of what I did, well, maybe it doesn't quite fit, but that's not really the point, is it? Like, you sing those songs because it expresses this truth about God and your relationship with him. Yeah, that's right. Even if my feet haven't been, you know, stuck in the mucky mire. Uh, that's a better example, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's the kind of thing I was trying to think of, yeah. Nuts. Yeah, it says, mm. it says to the Lord what we want to say, and that's why the Psalms are such a gift. Uh, yeah. And this Psalm seems to have been a gift to Jonah, the, the, mm. the song for the moment. 
Nice. Yeah. Very good. All right. Coming on to another question. Someone's asked the translation question. Look in uh, chapter 2, verse 8. They have asked, which is writer? As in, you know, which is more right? Uh, the 1984 NIV says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The 2011 NIV says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. This person says, the latter sounds somewhat watered down. Yeah, which of those is right or better? So we got the options, forfeit the grace that could be theirs or turn away from God's love for them. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so particularly often in the Old Testament, when we look at different English Bible translations, we can note discrepancies or different ways of expressing things. And it really reflects the, uh, the reality that uh, we are dealing with ancient literature, mm. uh, which uh, arises in an ancient culture and, and speaks to it. And we have the task of translating ancient literature into uh, modern language, modern English, and into our own cultural setting. And, you know, trying uh, the, the translator's task as they're attempting to preserve you know, the force of what God is saying across that transition from one language to another. Mm. Now, thinking about being watered down, one translating translation being watered down is perhaps not quite the right way to go about it. It's not as if you know, one translation has seen another one and thought, oh, that sounds a bit... There's something there I don't like very much. Got to soften that a bit. Like, soften like, that yeah. Forfeit, that's a bit harsh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And particularly in the case, as is here, with poetry, the uh, expressions in Hebrew, the meaning is clear, but they don't map closely onto English expressions. And so we need mm. to think about the best way equivalently to render the force of it. So in a, in a wooden literal sense, something... Uh, it says something like, uh, those who pay regard to puffs of emptiness turn away from, and the Hebrew word is chesed, mm. God's uh, covenant love, his steadfast, faithful love. Yeah. Uh, and so you, that's a tricky English sentence. You need to figure mm. out how you're going to say that. What does it mean? They, they, they turn away from chesed. Mm. Uh, and both of these are pretty good efforts to say that. Forfeit the grace that could be theirs, turn away from God's love for them. Mm. Uh, they both, to me, seem to be fair enough ways to try to make that point of turning away from uh, the faithful, steadfast love that is the love that God shows to his people. Yeah. Helpful, yeah. One of the things here, I think that it's often harder in the Old Testament. Um, the, like Greek, which the New Testament's written in, Greek and English are just a bit closer in like the language family tree out there. So, you know, Greek is what we call an Indo-European language and so is English. And, you know, you and I sort of understand a bit of Greek and Hebrew and my experience certainly is you look at Greek and just the, the structures of how words work and the sentences are a bit more familiar for the English reader. So sometimes like you would look at your different English Bibles and the New Testament, there's not as much difference as there will be in the Old because Hebrew as a... Semitic language, this different family of language, it's just a bit more alien, and things map even less easily from Hebrew to English than they do from Greek to English, in my experience, certainly. So I think that, and then you add on top of that is poetry, and that's, again, like, Absolutely. poetry is these, you know, really kind of dense phrases, and sometimes there's, you know, plays on words, and there's intentional ambiguities, and not a lot of that comes across really easily in translation, so I think the part of the story is give thanks to God for the translators who put their lives into... <laughs> working hard on these things and do such a wonderful job like do a really trend. good job all our like our, all our mainline English translations are just fantastic in so many ways so praise God for them because they're wonderful mm. 
All right, we'll keep going. Uh, so a couple of questions come up about, uh, so uh, in my sermons, Peter, we had a look at Matthew 12. I don't know if we did in yours. I didn't get to hear yours, sadly. Um, we didn't. We didn't. So this is more on sort of my side of the Sunday. Um, someone's asked, who is the Queen of the South in Matthew 12? So I'm still flicking to it, and, and Peter's still flicking to it, uh, but while we're flicking, I can talk. So Jesus makes this comparison, you know, the men of Nineveh will rise up on the last day, and then he talks about the Queen of the South. Um, yeah, can you read the verse for us? I can. <laughs> now that I've found it, 1242. No, I'm still going, that's why I asked you. <laughs> Struggling with the flicking, sorry, yes. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom... And now something greater than Solomon is here. Yeah, he was just queen of the south. Well, it's the queen of Sheba. The queen of Sheba. So who's the queen of Sheba? <laughs> well, this is another you know matter that people have a bit of trouble squaring up exactly where Sheba might have been, the biblical mm. archaeologists. They think perhaps uh, Kush, uh, which is something like Ethiopia. But, uh, you know, in, the, in uh, 1 Kings, it was talking about... Solomon talking about his kind of international reputation as a you know man of wisdom. Mm. Uh, the Queen of the South makes this journey to see him. She brings all kinds of incredible gifts, uh, and she marvels at seeing what Israel is like. And she listens to the wisdom that Solomon has been given from the Lord. Yeah, One Kings chapter ten. You can go check that story out. Little asides. One of the cool places. It's kind of. I have always felt like that chapter is like the absolute climax of the first part of the Old Testament because. You get this theme in like one Kings kind of one to ten that the promises to Abraham are coming true. Like Israel, this nation, like they're in the land, they're there experiencing God's blessing, and God told Abraham like you, you know you'll be a blessing to the nations. And I think that's part of the point. The Queen of Sheba, she comes from the nations. She's from like miles away, and she comes and she's benefiting from the blessings of Solomon's kingdom. And you have this like oh like it looks like we're kind of there. And the very next chapter in 1 Kings 11, like, Solomon goes and marries a bunch of women who worship idols, and he gets led astray, and, like, the kingdom's in tatters two chapters later. So it's like, I find it interesting. You have this climax, and then straight away, it's, like, straight into the dust. Anyway. Yeah, interestingly, another example of a, of a, a pagan idolater, you know, mm. presumably, starts far and comes near. And, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, we, we, we anticipate the Lord, where the Lord calls people from all nations, from the coastlands. So good, himself. yeah. So good. All right. Uh, Peter, this one's, this one's for you. Peter suggested that the three days and three nights may not have been a literal period of time, but symbolic of moving between life and death. I think it was, sorry, life and death. Where did that come from? Life and death. Jonah. Um, I was about to say about Jonah. Um, let me start again. I like that, life and death. <laughs> life yeah. and death. Could be. If you're a Jeff out there listening, yeah, um, good to have you with us. Sorry. Um, three days and three nights, not literal in Jonah too, but this symbolic of moving between life and death. How does that make sense in light of Matthew 12, which is compares Jonah to him, uh, who does spend a literal three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Yep, it's a helpful question. Uh, a couple of things to say. Uh, one is that uh, in the canon of Christian scripture, in the Christian Bible, we have the book of Jonah, we also have the book of Matthew, and so they exist in a conversation with one another. We believe that Jonah is pointing forward to its fulfillment in Christ mm. and we believe that uh, the gospel is the coming true of all God's promises and that all the yeses, uh, all the promises of God in scripture find their yes in Jesus. So mm. it's right for us to read these together. However, reading them well involves first reading them well separately, each in its own terms, and it's worth bearing in mind that whoever wrote Jonah, we don't know who it was, 
he didn't have a copy of Matthew in front of him at mm. the time. Yeah. So he's trying to make his own point, the author of Jonah, whoever it is, by writing three days and three nights. And you know, to pick up something else that we uh, drew on earlier, some other to draw some other threads together. We've been talking about how uh, to take an expression figuratively is not the same thing as not taking it seriously. Yeah, it's so crucial. We're saying again, yeah. Yeah, we don't have to take something literally to take it seriously. Okay, mm. we must ask ourselves, what's the import of this? Yeah. But it may not necessarily mean that it was seventy-two hours and precisely that. No, not a minute, nor not a minute. Down to the nanosecond. Down yeah. to the nanosecond. <laughs> yes, perhaps not. Yeah. And uh, as we, you know, as we talked about earlier, this is written in an ancient culture and to an ancient culture. And so we have to ask, you know, are there particular resonances to that phrase, which don't strictly have to do with temporality? Mm. Um, so, you know, we might say, um, I haven't seen you in a million years. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. not, that's not, no one ever has meant that literally. Yeah. No one has we ever said that means. meant it literally. Yeah, you, you know, you don't have to take that literally to take it seriously, as you've said. Like, I can hear you say that and know what you mean. Like, it's been ages, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so... Similarly, it's, it's possible that, again, the, the, the scholars of ancient culture have found places where three days and three nights seems to have a kind of resonance beyond a period of time. It has to do with being somewhere weirdly in a kind of grey that's not life or death, but somewhere in between. Mm. So it's possible, you know, I want to say, particularly when we're dealing with this kind of ancient culture, we're always talking in, in, in terms of probabilities and possibilities. Yeah. Mm. We can rarely say for sure. But it is possible that some of these symbolic meanings to do with life and death are the most prominent ones rather than a strictly temporal meaning. Mm. Yeah, helpful. Another question on the three days and three nights. Uh, someone's asked, uh, Jesus said you know, he would be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, pointing to Jonah. But we know that Jesus died on Friday and then rose on Sunday morning, and this person says that's two nights, which is true. So are they missing something? Is you know one of them wrong? Jesus was in the grave, you know, what like thirty nine out, you know, something like that, you know, a bit over a day and a half. Yeah, that doesn't sound like three days and three nights. What's going on? Yeah. So I mean, again, here I think it's important as we take our steer from the scriptures themselves as we read this expression three days and three nights is there and rising on the third day is there the narrative makes it clear that the the temporal value of jesus you know time uh um in the grave is is not a strict literal 72 hours not a minute more not a minute less yeah it seems that he dies and is buried on uh friday night Mm. Uh, Friday uh, afternoon and yeah. then spends Friday night all of Saturday Saturday night and part of Sunday morning mm. in the tomb but then is gloriously raised yeah hallelujah uh, the so three days and three nights in this case the, the scriptures are, uh, are urging us not to see it as you know a strict literal statement about temporality mm. uh, and perhaps there is something picking up this sense from Jonah that Jesus is passed out of the land of the living yeah. but also not to permanently reside in the land of the dead, that in some sense this is not an ending for him. It's possible there's some kind of nuance carried over from the Jonah story into the way that Matthew presents Jesus' experience in the tomb. Mm, yeah, I like that. Yeah. It's fascinating to think how they're, they're picking up the different texts and using them. Yeah, thank you. But maybe it's worth making the point, which you made so well, Jack, that the Jonah's experience is a death and resurrection. Yeah. That's how it's portrayed. Jesus' experience is a literal death 
and resurrection. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Actually raised from the place of the dead. Yeah. Yes. To our great joy and benefit. All right. Last question to bring us home. Someone's asked, why does Jesus pick and choose who follow him? I'm not particularly sure how this connects to journey to what we're looking at, but that's someone's question. And that's, you know, we take our question seriously. So, yeah. Peter, what would you have to say? Well, uh, it's something that we've talked about uh, a lot, isn't it? So Mm. Jesus' call is to all to follow him. So Jesus addresses himself to those with ears to hear. Mm. Uh, So I take it that everybody has ears. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But the Lord Mm. grants ears to hear. Mm. Uh, Ears that take Jesus' message seriously. So in a sense, we're we're again at the the mystery of election, that God desires all people to be saved, but uh, no one comes to the Lord unless the Lord draws them, Mm. unless the Lord does his renewing work by his Holy Spirit, such that we can repent and put our faith in Jesus. No one is saved without faith, and no one comes to faith without the Lord's work. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. When you're asking why questions, that's sometimes where it gets tricky. God doesn't have to tell us why he does everything he does. We are creatures and he's a creator. That's kind of the Romans 9 line as well. You know, you're a pot. Who are you to talk back to the one who made you? Mm. And yet that passage, as we saw last year, does kind of go on to say that, you know, what if God uh, bore patiently with those objects of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory upon his objects of mercy? And I think you do get a bit of a why there. And that's the ultimate why to everything. Why does God do anything? Ultimately, it's for his glory, to demonstrate his glory to the universe and... Somehow, uh, what he does in his choice is in fulfillment of that purpose. I mean, why does pick and why does Jesus pick? You know, this person, not that person. I don't think we get an answer to that question. We know why Jesus chooses at all. You know, big picture for the glory of God. But why does he choose person A, not person B? I mean, I don't think we get an answer to that. And that's part of Romans nine as well. Like, why Jacob and not Esau? You know, not because one was better than the other. Exactly. Yeah. Before they did anything good, good or bad, God made his choice. We don't know why uh, we know why he chooses at all uh, we know that uh, he does choose and we just give thanks that we have the chance to hear Jesus and come and turn to him and find life because no one who no one who comes will be turned away yeah that's a brief summary because again we, we tackled this in a big way last year so let me again point you to if you haven't listened to it go back to sort of October last year check out Sam and I did our three-part predestination special two hours of juicy goodness on the doctrine of election mm. for your edification go back and have a listen it's a classic. Great times, yeah. Well, you weren't here, Peter. You, you missed out on it. But um, I, I'm, I'm sure that you've got it on your to-listen-to uh, list as well. So get into that sometime. Um, one, sorry, there is one last question. I mean, kind of quick functional one as we kind of wrap it up. Someone's asked, have we decided to drop question time? Just know it's been a few weeks since we had questions on a Sunday. No, no, I haven't dropped question time, but you may have noticed it's been a big couple of weeks at church. Lots has been going on, mm. and so other things have been happening uh, in that kind of slot in our services. But we're still having question time, uh, just perhaps a little less frequently, and you will notice that we are answering questions right now. That's right. We'll always get to them on the extras, and sometimes we'll get to them on Sundays, so yeah, stay tuned for that. As we wrap up, Peter, Jonah 3 coming up on Sunday. What have we got to look forward to? Well, we get to look forward to this tension that's been building throughout the book. What is, what exactly is it that the Lord has to say to Nineveh and what mm. is going to happen should Jonah ever get there? He does, and what happens is remarkable. Yeah, looking forward to it. Don't want to say any more than that because, man, yeah, this is a great chapter. Looking forward to it. We all see you then, God willing. Until then, God bless. God bless you all. Goodbye.